Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisbing both New York City-based psychotherapists and mothers on this body-positive parenting journey with you, here to help you help your children fully bloom. Hi everyone, Zoe here. Just a quick word before we get started. We recorded this episode a few weeks ago uh, before the pandemic took over all of our lives. We're pleased that this episode focuses on the topic of comfort eating because it may be relevant to even more people listening at this time. But we felt a little funny getting started with business as usual without acknowledging this crisis that is affecting us all. And we are doing our best to continue to produce our body positive parenting content for you as we all try to manage a very new world that we're living in. We really are hoping everyone is staying home and staying connected to family and friends via virtual platforms and taking comfort in whatever you have going for you in your life right now. So uh, Leslie and I are thinking of everyone and hope that today's episode still bears some relevance and can't wait to get to the other side of this strange time in our lives. Enjoy. A quick reminder that this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast, episode number 54. This season, our theme is body positive parenting in real life, and we are featuring personalized questions from our patrons. If you'd like a body positive parenting question of your own answered, consider becoming a patron of the podcast at fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. Patron support allow us to keep this podcast going strong, and your questions allow us to customize our content specifically for you. So let's read this question of the week. Can you do an episode on the idea of overeating and how to handle it from a body-positive, non-stigmatizing approach? One of my kids can and does go through an entire bag of chips what seems like every day after school while she's on her phone before she starts her homework. I'm worried she's not eating intuitively and is eating more than her body really needs. I also want her to be able to deal with the boredom or school stress without food. I haven't always modeled the best approach around food. I generally try to eat healthy and I'm sure I've sent unhelpful messages about foods being good or bad in the past. So I'm trying to be conscious of not labeling foods or shaming my kids around food, but I don't know how to help with what seems like unintuitive eating. I really love this question. I think that uh, it, this mom seems so attuned and I think is is gently trying to take responsibility for some of the impact she's maybe had on her kid, but the mere fact that 
she's asking this question. It's, it's such a good sign. Yeah. And we've had so many similar questions come in, you know, so I'm really excited to find someone who I think is just the best person to answer this question. So you want to introduce our guest, Zoe? Yes. So we uh, had been wanting to talk to Dr. Janet Tomiyama for a a while now. She's an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at UCLA. And one of the reasons we were interested in speaking to her, particularly with regard to this question, is that her research focuses on stress, weight, and comfort eating. So we're thrilled to welcome Dr. Tomiyama to the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Tomiyama. Thank you. Great to be here. We're very happy to have you, and we're very excited to offer your expertise more broadly, but also um, as it pertains to today's listener question. But before we do that, could you just kick us off by telling us a bit about your background and the work that you do? Of course. So I am an associate professor at UCLA in the Department of Psychology, and I identify as a health psychologist. And I think that health psychology might be a newer field that people aren't maybe used to hearing about. And uh, so basically what we study in general is how our thoughts and feelings and behaviors and the way that we think, all those things, how those affect physical health. So something that a lot of health psychologists study is stress because Stress is this emotional experience that we have that can then go on to have waterfall effects on our actual bodies and our health. And so I think that's the easiest way to understand what health psychology is. Um, And in terms of my specific work, I conduct research and I think of them as three buckets of research. So the first, which I think we're going to talk a lot about, is stress and eating and comfort eating Um, But I also study dieting, especially low-calorie dieting for weight loss and, you know, look at how effective is that? Is that something that is the right choice to make everybody do? And then I have a third bucket, which looks at the negative physical health consequences of weight stigma or fat shaming. So if someone makes us feel bad because of the way we look, we know that makes us feel terrible, of course, but what what I'm finding with my colleagues is that it can actually harm our physical health um, in so many different ways. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean and what you've been researching regarding comfort eating? Yeah, of course. So it's an interesting (laughs) debate uh, in the field. So some say eating after any kind of negative emotion, that that's what comfort eating is. So to that camp, you know, sad eating, angry eating, stress eating, those are all considered comfort eating. Um, And then there's another camp that says, no, no, it's this very specific behavior that we do, which is to eat more and eat worse after somebody experiences stress specifically. Um, And so in our lab, we've looked at it in several different ways, but most recently we've really zoomed in on stress-induced eating as as our sort of way of thinking about comfort eating. So when something stressful happens to you, what happens to your eating? Since there is this kind of divide for the purposes of our conversation as we flesh it out more, is there one definition that you want us to hold or can we 
can we pick what we want to think <laughs> comfort eating is? I mean, I think everybody has their own association, but you're you're the researcher. So what? how should we be thinking about this as we push on? Yeah, so I think it's the least confusing when you think about it as stress eating. So something bad happened to you or your life is overwhelming and you're having difficulty dealing with things that are piling up. Um, you know, this, everybody knows what stress is. <laughs> so when, when you experience that, the changes in eating that happen to you. So, you know, most people can identify with the scenario where, you know, you maybe you got fired from work. Um, and so you turn to a big ice cream sundae to soothe your emotions. So that's really the phenomenon that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. From your perspective or in- where your lab is looking at, is it problematic? Is it a coping skill? Like, What is its impact? Yeah, so some would say it's problematic. There are some people who are really in a panic about obesity, and, and so they want to eradicate comfort eating because they think it's contributing to uh, individuals getting heavier. That's one angle. But really, the way I come at it is is the opposite way, which is to think about, okay, a lot of people do comfort eating. Why do they do that? Is it really the right path to finger wag and say, why are you doing this? Don't do this anymore. Um, wouldn't it be more productive to understand why individuals are doing comfort eating and then maybe talk about, okay, here are some pros and here are some cons. So Let me make that more concrete for you. So most people don't know that uh, we're not the only species to do comfort eating. So rodents do it. Some species of uh, primates do it. And what the researchers in that area are finding is that when you give, let's say, chronically stressed out rats, when you give rats comfort food, and so in, in their case, it's usually Crisco mixed with sugar or some experiments use Oreo cookies, you know, so that's, that's rat comfort food. Um, so when you give those rats that comfort food, what they find is that it actually works to dampen down their stress hormones, to dampen down their brains responding to stress. And so to me, that's fascinating because it means that comfort eating isn't this like random thing that we do, it, there's there's a reason we do it. It's because it actually might dampen our stress levels. Since that's my perspective, I really hesitate to go to this place of, oh my God, comfort eating is causing obesity. So we have to eradicate it at all costs. You know, that's, that is not my um, specific viewpoint. And I think about a story that I heard from Rob Lustig, who's this very illustrious Uh, researcher at UCSF. And he was talking about sort of informational workshop he did in Bayview Hunters Point, which is sort of the low-income racial ethnic minority area of San Francisco. And sort of doing the standard nutrition lecture, which is like, you need to limit your sugary food intake, you know, and make sure you're not eating too many unhealthy foods. Um, And a woman raised her hand and said, you know, I work two jobs and my life is really stressful. And my one joy in life is to come home and eat my Snickers bar. And are are you even going to take that away from me? 
So like, I think examples like that make it really clear that it's a really um, common and easy and important and useful behavior for a lot of people. It's an interesting behavior where we're like, okay, is it problematic? I mean, probably not good to eat a Snickers bar every day. But what if it's dampening down her actual stress hormones? Well, stress hormones aren't good either. And so we, we've been doing work in our lab to try and like get our way out of this conundrum. Like how do we keep just the good aspects of comfort eating and not put ourselves at risk of the bad aspects of comfort eating? I, I think it's uh, such a wonderful place to begin. And I really appreciate your perspective because and you're alluding to it, but when we have, you know, clients, whether they're teens or kids or adults in, in our practice, there's so much shame around this. You know, you'll hear it referred to as emotional eating or stress eating, comfort eating, bored eating. Like there's so many different ways that I know it comes up. And I think, I mean, I loved, I chuckled when you mentioned the Crisco and sugar and the Oreos with the rats because Crisco and sugar, it's sort of like, think about, I thought of cake. It's like a cupcake, like that it is, it's not even that different, right? And certainly an Oreo, certainly not that different from what we might register as comfort foods. But just to open it up by saying, this is pretty normal. It's kind of adaptive. We're not the only species that does it. And Let's get to the bottom of maybe what isn't working for you about it, but let's sort of clear up the myth that there's something morally bad happening or biologically wrong happening and and actually start from a place of like, well, this makes total sense and nothing bad is happening. And so let's take a look at it and um, explore it and maybe try to increase your coping skills, which is perhaps where we're going. But I think it's a really important paradigm shift for us all to really make um, so that we're not just all thinking about stress eating as this like terrible thing that we have to like repent for. Because I mean, that comes up all the time, right? I think so. And I think that, you know, the question of the week, I think is one that I've had absolutely family members of my clients come to me and and share this concern you know like how do I tolerate um, and think about this this behavior that I'm seeing my child do without shaming them or stigmatizing them and how do I understand it a little bit more so that I can be helpful or what ways can I you know help um, with this behavior so Based on your expertise and research, what are your thoughts on this week's question? Yeah, so the question is difficult. And we we published a paper showing in children. So if you you stigmatize girls, this was a study of 2,400 girls. If you stigmatize them when they're 10, they're much more likely to end up with a body mass index in the obese range um, when they're age 19. And that is taking out the effect of their size when they start out in the study. So it's not just, you know, that heavier girls um, get shamed and they end up heavier. It's it's um, regardless of what you weighed in the beginning, if you are fat shamed, then you do have an increased risk of 
um, having an obese BMI. So, out of curiosity, in in your lab in that study, what was the like method of of stigmatizing? Yeah, so that one was an archival study, meaning the measure of weight stigma wasn't great. It wasn't how I'd ideally design it, but it was an interesting one. So it asked, have any of these people told you you're too fat? And that was followed by a list that included father, mother, brother, sister, best girlfriend, boy you like best, you know, because they're a 10, and teacher. So it was, are the people who are around you telling you you're too fat? So it's not an intense stigmatizing event, but I still think the fact that there's any relationship between that, which sounds so mild, and future risk that we could detect, you know, 10 annual measurement points later, I think is really important. And I think it's something that, that gets thrown around a lot. And so that was the way that that study characterized it. And, you know, that study got a fair amount of attention and this was the question I was getting from parents all the time. Like, well, then what, what do I do? Like, what can I say? I don't want to stigmatize my child, but how do I talk to her about this? And so I'm, I'm very much, you know, empathic to that. I think you could talk about eating without ever mentioning weight. I think that as soon as you start talking about your daughter's weight, or if your physician starts talking about obesity, I think that's what triggers these sort of shaming, stressful processes. And it's also really hard to change weight. Anyone who's been on a diet knows this, right? It's really hard to lose weight and keep it off. And so it's sort of like this laser focus on weight sets you on the track to a weird, difficult place. Um, Whereas if you talk about eating without ever mentioning weight, then now you're talking about something that a person can change day to day or exercise or sleep or stress. So those are the four things that I think can be changed from day to day and get you in a much better place mentally and physically than going down this weight-focused path. And when we think about, when you think about and kind of study this, this you know, comfort eating or stress eating, what are you learning about what can intervene to help that behavior? Is that, is that behavior decreasable? Is that what you're going for? Is it... Um, I want to interrupt and, and kind of defer the question. Okay. Because one of the things that I want, because I, I want us to keep talking about comfort eating and the stress eating. And this parent is actually saying, I also want my daughter to be able to deal with boredom and stress of school without food. So I want to get to that. But I want to just preface it by saying there are often restrictions, right, that are like dietary restraint that might be happening. Um, And we don't know in particular with this kid. But I want to sort of just draw our attention to kind of what we do in treatment, right, where we look at that kind of the vertical axis and the horizontal axis of like the way we conceptualize eating behavior and how there may be either food rules or restriction or kind of good, bad rules, right, around food that are making the sensationalism around the chips or whatever this kid is eating too big a deal because she's maybe not feeling like she can get them in like kind of whenever and in a no big deal kind of way. And we do talk about that a lot on the podcast. So I sort of want us for the for kind of to 
frame the rest of the conversation to think like, let's say that we really are addressing comfort eating, right? Or addressing the eating that is in reaction to stress. Because in a way, until you really know what's going on with that kid's relationship with food at large, right? Like if they are truly eating regularly and they truly are not having such kind of bad, good associations with food, we would maybe know that there is something more, the eating behavior is attending to the emotional distress rather than like I'm in energy deficit by the time I get home because I literally haven't eaten enough all day. So of course I'm going to eat a bag of chips. So do, do, do you, I hope it's okay that I just sort of pause there to put that caveat in. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned a bad, good association with food. So let me tell you how we're trying to keep the good in comfort eating and leave out the bad. That's an oversimplification, but just just to frame what I'm about to talk about. So we just completed a study where we had people undergo this stress reduction exercise, it's five minutes, and then eat a fruit immediately after it. Um, So let's say they did the five-minute stress reduction exercise, and then they ate a strawberry. And we had them repeat that over and over and over again. Um, So with the idea that eventually you can take away the actual five-minute exercise, just pop that strawberry and your body would be conditioned to just automatically experience that stress reduction. Uh, You might remember from your high school biology textbooks about classical conditioning. It was like Pavlov's dogs and like the dogs were given meat powder and then they rang a bell and they did meat powder bell, meat powder bell, meat powder bell over and over again. And then Soon they would just ring the bell and the dogs would start salivating. And so it's basically like the same concept here where we're trying to link a fruit with a stress reduction so that so that we're basically trying to like mind hack our way into this so that it doesn't have to be the Snickers bar. It can actually be this fruit that's going to promote, you know, health and bring you relaxation at the same time. So that study is not yet published. It's like under review right now. Um, But I really do want to share it with your listeners because I think that might be a way to get in even more fruits and veggies, which we're supposed to get anyway, right? (laughs) And simultaneously um, sort of hack our minds to get to a place where that does bring us comfort so that it doesn't have to be, you know, the Crisco mixed with sugar, And so I think that could be one way to get out of this conundrum of how there's both attractive aspects of comfort eating and then some some other aspects that maybe aren't as health promoting. Just makes me wonder about, you know, some of our other conversations and guests have really talked about being careful not to make treats, treats, um, only because it's like the backwards of your experiment. Like what if we never conditioned Snickers bars to be relaxing and and, and a treat, you know, and pleasurable. I mean, I don't know if that's possible. I I guess you explored this in your experiment, but just thinking from, from the parenting end, how to help 
our kids not see, not associate food with so many different kind of emotional experiences. I'm just curious if that would be effective as well. You know, instead of having to condition ourselves out of it, what if we didn't condition ourselves into it in the first place? Just kind of a curiosity there. Yeah, eating is so conditioned. So I have a couple thoughts on that. I think it's definitely true that this phenomenon exists where you had a bad day of school and so your caregiver baked you a plate of cookies and made you feel much better. So from childhood, we're learning this connection between stress relief and these really indulgent foods. And I think it might go back even earlier than that. So when I had my son, um, he was really colicky, drove me crazy. (laughs) So when I had my son... He would cry and I would nurse him and he would stop crying. And I was like, oh my God, this is comfort eating. It's like, it starts at day one of birth after birth. And so I think it's a powerful thing that we learn very early on. But the fact that comfort eating is conditioned means we could condition it the other way, which was what our study was trying to do. You know, going back to the question of the week, I was thinking it's probably a good idea you know, you guys are the clinicians, so so I'd love to know what you think about this. But having a conversation to see what is triggering the eating of the whole bag of chips. So, you know, like sometimes I feel like eating a whole bag of chips too. Like, what is it that's so great about chips? And probably like the first thing that your kid will say is, oh, because they taste good. So you could pivot to, oh, yeah, they're so salty and crunchy. Like, what what else is salty and crunchy? Like, oh, here's some almonds here. We could try those too. And I think that might be good because it's not about not eating and like stop that, but rather adding in something else that could be health promoting. But then after that, I think diving into the emotional stuff, you know, like how do you feel when you eat a whole bag of chips? Like, do you feel really like happy? What are, what are the other things that make you happy? You know, like, oh, you feel happy reading a book? Let's do that. Or should we go outside and ride your bike? Pivoting to other things that are also happiness inducing, I think might be good and just sort of get it away as you guys were mentioning earlier, like get it away from or just being casual about the bag of chips and not making a huge deal out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the intersection of this with, I guess, what I was trying to call out earlier that like. And I think the mom in, with this question is acknowledging that she hasn't always modeled the best approach around food and that she generally tries to, quote, eat healthy, which, you know, nothing wrong with being healthy. But I think she has enough insight into the risks of of kind of moralizing around food and sending unhelpful messages about foods being good and foods being bad. And most people put potato chips in the bad category. I mean, um, and so that intersection of kind of the sort of comfort eating with eating out of a sense of availability, right? Or eating out of a sense of like, I don't know when I'll get chips again because this is sort of a forbidden food. And so there's something about getting this thing that I that does taste good and that I don't know if I can have. And and I guess I'm at once kind of noticing that these things sometimes are hard to tease apart. And then I guess I'm asking you, like, how do you tease that apart? Like, how do you know when you're actually evaluating comfort eating and when you might be looking at 
a natural response to a sort of restriction mentality or dietary restraint mentality. Yeah, I think it's really difficult. And I don't know of any research that has explicitly compared the two. Yeah, I, I agree. It's probably very, very hard. I mean, I know clinically, like, we try to evaluate that. But I think also one of the things that your work speaks to and the work of Ellen Satter speaks to is this, this, the bigger conversation is around stress, right? Like, how do we reduce stress for this child and look at that variable on its own a little bit in, in connection to this? And, you know, this person, this is happening right after school, before homework. I know that the kids that I've worked with that have struggled the most with this, that is the time of the day that tends to be the most challenging for them because all they want to do is like take a break from school, but they have so much homework. How do they manage that that stress, you know? And I think it's something I'm curious in, in terms of your further research around the role, like how do we kind of work on the stress piece and see the cascade effects of that on to our maybe eating behavior and health behaviors. Yeah. So you're asking, how can we get rid of stress, which is so hard? <laughs> how, can we, how can we help our kids, this kid, you know, how, how can we help them with stress? Or is that really something that in these cases, we just really have to be not getting too overly concerned with the chips, but more concerned a bit about the stress, you know, and like. Absolutely. So, well, one thing I should tell you is that I have research showing that dieting is stressful. So like, let's get rid of dieting as one source of stress. One of my earliest studies looked at, well, we randomly assigned people to diet or not diet, and we measured their perceived stress and their stress hormone levels. And in fact, dieting, made people's stress hormone levels go up. So so that's one way to reduce it. Is to stop dieting. Stop <laughs> dieting, yep. Right. Well, so that you, kind of addresses your Yeah, that your addresses question. my question. But also, I, I, what you said, it, it cannot be said enough. I hope everyone listening is hearing that it's not – like the way you measured it was actually also to look at sort of what's happening physiologically and that there are higher levels of basically stress hormone – in reaction to the practice of dieting, there's like evidence, <laughs> scientific evidence there. That would therefore make it way more comfortable to comfort eat, right? Exactly. What? It's all connected. Right. Um, yeah. So if you're trying to target stress, I would say based on the literature, since I'm not a clinician, a good place to start is physical activity, exercise. Exercise is a surefire way to reduce stress and also promotes health, um, even if you don't lose weight from it. But I recognize that in your scenario, like, oh my God, they don't even have time to do their homework. <laughs> like, how are they going to then get exercise in? So that's not necessarily a panacea, not a cure all. The other thing is sleep. My gosh, the, the strength of the research coming out on the importance of sleep for whole body health, but for stress in general, if you reduce people's sleep, their stress goes up. If you improve their sleep, their stress goes down. If you improve their sleep, 
not only does their the sort of bodies responding to stress go down, but it helps the brain not even recognize stressors. So I think that's really important too. It puts your mind in a place where the stress doesn't even like get into your brain. So I'm all for these new policies that are starting school a little bit later. I think protecting the arena of sleep is really good. I have a colleague who I collaborate with a lot, Eric Prather, and he is a sleep expert. And I asked him the other day, like, why did you focus on sleep? Like, why is that what you research? And he said he loves studying sleep because it's really treatable. So, you know, other colleagues of his maybe are trying to treat um, major depression or borderline personality disorder. And it's, you know, it's a long process with, um, you know, relatively higher relapse rates. But insomnia, like he's like, I just do this module and then they're all better and I feel really great about it. <laughs> and I bring that up to just say sleep is something that is solvable and in a way that my colleague, who's this A-plus scientist, said is easy, quote unquote. Um, so I want to just, you know, boost your listeners' self-efficacy that um, there are these programs out there that are tried and true that can improve people's sleep. And if, you know, if our listeners are interested ask us a question about that because we'll happily bring (laughs) Eric on or someone else to help us talk about this particular issue. And, and I think what, what your answer is, is allowing for is to look to other things like, yes, maybe the way your child is using food in, um, as a way of coping with stress can be the sort of flag that maybe they need some kind of attention, some kind of support but to think beyond replacing the chips with another type of food and look at other things like how is sleep going? How is physical movement going to try to better assess like to Leslie's question, how do we help this kid and how do we actually zero in on the actual problem, which might have more to do with stress and emotional well-being and less to do with like food or body even though, of course, they all come together. And out of curiosity, just because uh, of the study you referenced that you recently did that's in review, it sounds like it was a five-minute stress reduction practice that you conditioned towards the strawberries. So will you share with us what that was? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. It is. um, It's really simple. It's a five-minute progressive muscle relaxation. So you lie down and then you like tense and relax different muscles of your body and you do it through all, all the muscles of your body. And that's been shown in study after study after study after study to beneficially affect all these different physiological markers of stress and emotional markers. So maybe this child could do that for five minutes when she gets home from school mm-hmm. and we'll see what happens. Totally. In fact, I think I have a link to our actual audio on my website. Oh, yeah, it is. So dishlab.org slash media. And it's under a heading that says audio. And it says, feeling a bit stressed? Try this progressive muscle relaxation audio. So there we go. That's a, a wonderful 
little tidbit from you that we didn't think we'd get, but maybe it slides right into our million-dollar question, Mm -hmm. um, which is if each parent listening to this podcast took away and did one thing regularly, what's the one thing you would recommend they do to help their child fully bloom? Yeah, I think it would be – I mean, I feel like your listeners, if they're listening to this podcast, are – way savvy about this, but I would say there's, there's just no need ever to mention the W word, which is weight, you know, or comment on the size of a person and really just focus on these behaviors, which is the things that can change day to day. So focus on decreasing stress, increasing physical activity, uh, getting a handle on your sleep, and then adding in more fruits and veggies. So don't think about um, taking away, quote unquote, bad foods, but just what can you add to your diet that is maybe more health promoting? But I don't know. I, I think it's interesting. Every time I talk to registered dietitians, they're like, I don't know even about that. Like maybe not even hold fruits and veggies up as this sacred thing that we should all be going for. You know, I think within that, it's try to find ways to eat more fruits and vegetables, and that's good, and that's it, period. Yeah, Um, and something like that. Well, and and also just to to respond, like this little nuance that we're kind of rubbing up against today, this is one of the things that we're really committed to trying to talk about, because it is, it's tricky. Like, we're trying to have more conversations about the way, like, how do you promote body positivity and food freedom and liberation and all these things and also accessibility to fruits and vegetables like no you know it's not to say that health at every size or body positivity is anti fruits and vegetables you know or anti like eat eating fiber so you can poop this is a misunderstanding but i know exactly what you what you mean how like you know there can be this push to be like, and I think I was even having it in the conversation. It's like, oh, no, no, don't talk about strawberries are better than chips, you know. And at the same time, like, no, I think the goal is to get into the nuance and to also notice that it could be a kid in a bigger body who's wolfing down chips in a stress kind of comfort eating kind of way. It could be a kid in a smaller body. And just because they're in a smaller body, that doesn't mean that they are potentially not using that food in a way to manage stress in a way that we want to help them with. So, I think the goal is to kind of get into the the weeds here and to allow it to get a little uncomfortable, but to ultimately say exactly what you said, which I think is a really valuable answer for our listeners today. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and more. Thank you so much for your research and your dedication to, to helping us clinicians um, have guidance around what the research is showing. We just really appreciate all the work that you're doing. Well, same to you. I mean, I just so appreciate having people out there who are having these conversations in a way that, you know, so many people can access and think about. So it's really wonderful. So that's our show. We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode. So please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And if you really have a question from this episode or any others that you would like us to exclusively answer, please consider becoming a patron so that we can answer that this season, potentially. Yes. 
And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find this podcast and spread the word uh, so more people can hear the body positive parenting message. Yeah, thank you all for listening. And remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.